0: How's your beer? Vibrant and hoppy, with notes of grapefruit.
1: Or deep, dark and richly satisfying.
0: And more importantly, how much carbon does it contain?
1: Not how fizzy is it, but how much carbon was used in its production.
0: Around the world, many of us enjoy finishing a busy day with a pint. Some pack a real punch, while others are low alcohol or alcohol-free. There's a dizzying array of styles, so most of us can find one we like.
1: There's almost as much diversity among brewers as there is between beers. Some are international brands with multiple highly industrialised facilities working constantly. Others are smaller, focusing on producing smaller batches of beer for their local
0: market. But all brewers must now face up to the impact of climate change from field to fridge, the production and distribution of your favorite beer is a source of carbon emissions. Brewers can address these impacts in a number of ways. They can cut diesel use from their supply and distribution vehicles. They can work with local farmers to reduce the use of fertilizers and pesticides and the food miles spent on the transport of crops.
1: Much of the brewing process involves the careful transfer of heat. Barley is heated to produce malt, and then boiled in water to produce wort. At the end of the process, the
0: beer is then held at a cool temperature to mature. Beer is a treat for many people, and one that they are prepared to pay a premium for if it matches their tastes and values. So brewers who can demonstrate their commitment to the environment may win more customers. And the entire industry will be
1: affected by climate change. Farmers will need to find new crop varieties that can withstand higher temperatures and changing weather patterns. Brewers will need to perfect new recipes using these slightly different new ingredients. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Ross McPherson. In this episode, we'll learn how brewers, large and small, are working to cut carbon emissions and other environmental harms across their operations. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Tim O'Rourke is a master brewer with decades of experience. He's a technical editor on Engineering Matters' sister publication, Brewers Journal, and he's an advisor to many other brewers through his consultancy, The Brilliant Beer Company.
1: He has in recent years been paying close attention to the environmental impacts of brewing. These start in the fields where the grains and hops that will become beer are grown.
2: We take in raw materials which comes from agriculture. That accounts for around about 30% of the carbon footprint. So it's really quite heavy, and particularly growing barley uh, where they're using fertilizers, etc. And the good news in that area is that there's a huge amount of improvement in soil structure and organic and regenerative farming. Whether that will provide the yield, the the tonnage of barley we need for malting, is another question. So that is really taking care of itself. It's our scope two uh, input. Barley by far is the biggest, hops is a second, but it's tiny compared to it.
0: Those crops are then malted, heated so that starches turn into sugars. This is the fuel that yeast will consume and turn into alcohol. And it gives the beer a nutty, flavourful taste.
2: Then the barley is malted, which involves quite a lot of energy drying. Now, a lot of the maltsters are now looking at biogas uh, to be able to fire their kilns, solar panels, various other things. So they're trying to reduce it because that's one of the most expensive parts of the brewing process. Brewing itself is only about 10% of the carbon footprint of a pint and by far 90% of that is energy. So we've got two types of energy. We've got heating, which is principally either principally fossil fuel, followed by electrical energy, which is used to run pumps, uh, and ve- conveyors, uh, refrigeration plant, and various things like that. And then this brings us to one difference, of course, is between ales and lagers, that lagers are stored for a long time, cold, and so they actually re- consume more electricity in refrigeration than ales do.
1: Let's look a bit more closely at the brewing process. Here, malted barley is heated in water to produce alcohol.
2: The next stage is actually brewing. If we go back to the energy used in brewing, we will use... To produce 100 litres of beer, we'll produce... We'll use about 400, 500 litres of water. About 150 litres of that uh, will be heated. Now, what we do is when we boil the wort, we have a heat exchanger. So after boiling the wort, that, that we cool it with mains water, cold water coming in to generate hot water for the next brew. So we recycle round about 80% of that heat. The
0: use of heat exchangers is a well-established part of the traditional brewing process and helps brewers control their costs. But it also helps keep carbon costs down.
1: Today, many brewers are going further, using heat pumps rather than heat exchangers, to move more heat between systems, cutting the financial and carbon costs of heating water even more.
2: If you were using it for boilers, your incoming hot water to top up your boilers would be preheated. So instead of coming in at 9 ambient, it could be heated up to, say, 20 ambient. So you've saved that amount of energy.
1: And there are a few other uses of energy within a brewery.
2: The balance of energy, about 10 to 15% of our energy, is electrical. And that's used for running refrigerants, pumps, conveyors, etc. like that. And uh, that is usually sourced now uh, where possible through a company that claims to provide renewable energy.
0: Finally, all that beer must get to the consumer, either poured into a pint glass at their local pub or taken home to drink. How that beer is packaged and transported and the broader business model of the brewer, can make a difference.
3: The
2: biggest variable is how you package your beer. To give you a sort of number, um, if you package your um, your beer in, uh, in bottles, it would be somewhere around about 800 grams of CO2 per litre of beer. If you package it as cask beer in returnable kegs for local consumption, it's somewhere around about 400 grams per litre of beer. So the, the, the environmental message is go to your pub and drink your beer there.
1: Of course, we don't all want to drink in a pub every time we have a beer. But when we fancy a pint, maybe it's a good idea for our beer bellies and the planet to sometimes take a stroll and go to our local.
0: When we do, we might walk through the fields where the barley for our beer is grown. As farming has become industrialized, farmers make increasingly intensive use of pesticides and fertilizers, which have their own carbon cost.
1: But other farming techniques can be used. When farmers make less intensive use of chemicals, the soil can recover. On that walk to a country pub, it will mean that we see more wildlife. Yields will be lower, and that is a challenge for farmers and brewers, But if they can be kept at a viable level, those barley fields will start to take carbon out of the
2: atmosphere. The net emission of a kilo of barley is somewhere around about 380 grams of CO2.
0: That's using conventional farmer methods. But it will all change if barley is grown using less intensive, if lower yielding, methods.
2: It will become an ex-carbon dioxide sink. It will actually probably make beer completely carbon neutral, because if we get organic matter back into the soil, the soil would be actually trapping and holding CO2 for us.
1: There are plenty of opportunities for breweries to cut their carbon emissions. As energy prices have soared, that has helped cut the payback time for any
0: investments they make. But the changes they make will vary from one brewery to another. That depends on parts, as Tim has explained, on the style of the beer they are brewing. The scale of their operations matters to me.
1: A local craft brewery may make beer only in the daytime, producing beer in batches. This is ideal if they want to power their brewery using solar power.
0: Larger breweries will work constantly and need constant power.
1: Chris Jackson is the CEO and founder of Proteum, which designs green hydrogen infrastructure for clients' facilities.
0: The company has recently begun working to build a green hydrogen facility at Bobweiser's Brewery in Soundsbury, near Preston in Lancashire. When it opens in 2025, the facility will power brewing operations and supply hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles.
1: There is, he says, no one-size-fits-all solution. The energy transition will require companies to not just look at where they source power, but at how they use it.
3: Budweiser has been, in, in our mind at least, looking at this in a more holistic way than people have more traditionally looked at energy. So to give a really good example, if I want to electrify a site, it's not just what is the cost of electricity from an electric boiler or a heat pump versus what is the cost of natural gas in a boiler. It's actually what are the broader system level of implications of that? Well, I have to re- reconfigure my boiler room because I now need to bring much more electrical supply into the site, into that particular area than was the case. You know, if I'm also running a heat pump, I then need to add a batch based process system. I need to think about where am I storing the hot water? Or am I going to have to complement my heat pump with an electric boiler to pick up the peaks as I run through, right? How does that come together? And then what are the implications for the grid in my area? Because the grid may not actually be comfortable with me having a large amount of intermittent demand coming onto the grid at any given time. You know, these industrial facilities are using multiple megawatts of demand. It's like turning on small towns or small villages when you suddenly connect an electric system The brewery at Salmsbury and also the brewery at Migra are are significant industrial facilities. They're in the top 50 largest um, energy users within the UK food and drink sector. It's not easy to just convert them 100% electric, so you do need to look at the full combination of technologies, and hydrogen for them is a great complement. For a
1: facility of this size, which has a large fleet of heavy goods vehicles to distribute beer around the country, green hydrogen is an attractive option.
3: It works well for the long range on their heavy good vehicles and the high payloads they carry it's a nice complement to energy efficiency and electrification that they're looking at on the sites they already use large amounts of water that's demineralized in their process and it allows them to access in certain locations like the Magor project renewables behind the meter solar and wind that would be harder to connect and run to a purely electric system they can bring more renewables onto the grid and actually deliver a greener solution than they could if they just connected to the grid for 100% of their energy requirements today.
0: Budweiser was an early adopter of power purchase agreements, or PPAs, which allow them to source electricity from renewable sources over the grid. In 2018, the brewer's parent company, AB InBev, struck a deal with LightSource BP, which is supplying 100 megawatts of solar power enough for 18,000 homes for Budweiser. The new facility, which Proteum is funding,
1: building and operating for Budweiser, will go further, generating renewable energy on-site, using it to produce green hydrogen, which can then be used for heating in the brewing process, and to power Budweiser's goods vehicles.
0: Proteum offers a complete solution for customers like Budweiser
3: we build upstream solar and wind, which is often contiguous and co located to our industrial clients. We also build additional solar and wind that is connected to the grid and that we can then sleeve. So we transport the power from wherever the solar wind is built to where our assets are. We call that the upstream. The midstream is then the production of hydrogen. And we use a process called electrolysis, which most people will remember from their chemistry classes. So splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. We predominantly work with an electrolysis technology, which is known as PEM or proton exchange membrane, um, is kind of the, the primary technology we use. And that allows us to connect the electrolyzer to intermittent sources of renewables because the electrolyzer is e- finds it easier to ramp up or ramp down the amount of power that it needs to draw from either renewables that are not connected to the grid and indeed to the grid itself. So it actually provides stability to the system, which is a massive value add of why we think green hydrogen supports and enables more renewables to come on and accelerates decarbonization. And so when we talk about providing hydrogen to a client like Budweiser, what we're really doing is we're helping them to brew with some wind and water. And that is actually a very simple and clean proposition. Where diesel was being used in trucks, you're now using a green fuel that comes from some wind and water where natural gas was being used in a heating process, you're now using green electrons either directly or you're converting green electrons into a green fuel, which is hydrogen, and using that hydrogen to create heat.
1: Fuel cell electric vehicles are designed in the same way as their battery electric counterparts, but use hydrogen rather than batteries to store power. They can travel further, allowing AB InBev to use less vehicles in a market like the UK, where there is a shortage of qualified HGV drivers, that is a big selling point.
3: So, in this particular instance, we're looking at compressing hydrogen to between 350 to 700 bar, and what that allows you to do is to achieve a longer range at a lower gross vehicle weight than would be possible for a comparable battery electric only heavy good vehicle. And the benefits of that are that from a system process level efficiency, at a fleet level, you don't need to buy as many new vehicles. Because if each truck can't go as far as the last truck and can't carry as much goods as the last truck, you need to intuitively have more trucks and more drivers to move the same volume of product.
0: Proteum's approach allows it to scale its hydrogen facilities to meet customer needs using equipment from a variety of suppliers.
3: And then we work with the parties who provide effectively a turnkey um, EPC solution, who can actually bring all the components together and then do that. And we will oversee an input into all of those different elements. And we have our own in-house digital twin that we've been working with, Siemens PSE, so that we can design our systems prior to construction. And then we can also monitor the performance of the system in the real world, compare it to the previous designs. And as we build more systems, also optimize. The primary electrolyzer partner we work with in the UK for the larger scale systems is Siemens Energy, who have a product which is called a stylizer 3000 product. And that's, um, uh, they, they frame it as a full stack solution, which is a 17.6 megawatt electrical um, system. That's their, their standardized product. And they also offer what's called a half stack, which is an 8.6 megawatt system. There are other clients we work with where we would look at smaller systems that would be more containerized. So, you know, you're talking about systems really kind of from the one megawatt to the five megawatt range, which might be in a 40-foot ISO container. Um, and we actually have, and you can see it on our website, there's some photos of it, a 100 kilowatt, 20-foot uh, containerized, electrolyzer system that's been developed um, by a company called Enapter, which won the Earthshock prize. So it's uh, highly modular. It's 40 2.5 kilowatt electrolyzers that are stacked together.
1: For now, an approach like that used at Samlesbury works best with a single large energy user. Jackson says that it could be adopted by clusters of energy-intensive businesses. But this, of course, introduces commercial complexity.
0: The small modular electrolyzers may one day be a cheap and convenient option for much smaller businesses. But for now, they often need to take a more incremental approach, improving efficiency in their systems and directly generating some renewable energy. That's the approach being taken by Andy
1: Hepworth. The brewery he founded in Horsham with a group of friends and family, Hepworth & Co., in 2000, Focuses on small batches of craft beer, which is largely sold locally.
0: Andy and his colleagues are keen to run an environmentally sustainable business, but they also see commercial benefits. As a small rural business, they rely on fuel oil being shipped Hep, to their site co, in
4: One 2000 focuses One on first small steps batches they took of craft, was craft to install beer, solar which panels is largely sold
0: locally. Some of their energy needs.
4: Okay, the first set of solar went in July 2017 and um, the we put in enough to do 30 kilowatts max that had a payback at that point of uh, just under five years. That is without any capital allowances. Uh, So without the tax relief, which which roughly speaking would have been 20% of the costs off that.
1: Installing solar panels became an even more attractive option after Russia's invasion of
4: Ukraine and the
1: subsequent surge in energy prices.
4: Then the second set went in in May last year, and that we put 40 kilowatts in, and the payback on that on current electricity prices, which went up 228% last May and a further 15% this May, uh, mean the payback on that is to is uh, two and a third years or less current uh, capital allowances, which are enhanced for green technology. So uh, effectively, that, that equates to 33% of the cost. So 33% of the time off that. The payback in real terms is about one and a half years.
0: The brewery, like many others, sponsors local sports clubs. Recently, it has offered one of the clubs, it sponsors, solar panels rather than cash. That helps support the club over a number of years. And it emphasises the brewery's green credentials, alerting customers to the option of drinking a more sustainable beer. Traditional
1: English real ales are delivered and sold fresh in pubs, but many of the beers Andy brews are designed to be sold in cans and bottles. These need to be stabilised so they can maintain their shelf life. Some brewers use chemical processes to do this. Andy prefers a more traditional approach, keeping the beer cold for a very long time. To do this, they use chillers. At the same time, much of their energy costs go on heating water for the brewing.
4: So when we were designing the cooling system, we said, well, a cooler is a heat pump, really. All we have to do is be able to take that heat away in a useful manner. Mostly that heat ends up being blown out into the atmosphere via fans through an evaporator. So we have heat exchangers, which are just simple liquid plate heat exchangers, uh, on the refrigerator. Refrigerant going to the evaporator. So before it goes to the evaporators, we're taking the heat out using basically tap water, mains water, into those heat exchangers, and that is preheating it prior to us having to heat it up to temperatures we need to brew. So we're saving steam on heating that water for brewing, quite a significant quantity. Somewhere around 40% now of the oil that we would burn, we've taken out of the equation.
0: Andy and his colleagues were pioneers in using heat exchangers like this.
4: It was certainly a novel thing seven years ago when we started it. Um, it uh, probably less novel now. The one we bought three years three years ago to replace a less efficient one. Um, it was the Mark 1 version with a Mark 1 software. <laughs> We're now on the seventh iteration of software. Yes, yeah, so we've had to do some pioneering work to make it work in our circumstances. But none of it was very complicated or very very challenging, really. It was just finding out what would work in our circumstances. And we, need, we use quite a lot of hot water, so we could easily collect that heat and use it. So, so that's sort of if you like the low-temperature heat pump side of things. And they really, we had to buy those chillers anyway. Adapting them for heat recovery was a small percentage increase in their costs, around
1: 10%. The technology has developed rapidly, Andy says, making them more efficient. And as Hepworth & Co have familiarised themselves with the technology, it has been able to make more use of them.
4: For instance, the first ones we we brought in only had 30% heat recovery on them, because they were concerned that if we didn't use all the heat, the machines would become too hot and become less efficient. And we didn't at that point know whether we could or not, we hadn't tried it out. so one, one of those broke down after I think it was three or four years. One of the compressors on it went, um, it was actually half the cost to re- repair it. And We said, well, actually, we'd rather put up, because we knew, then knew we could buy a 100% heat recovery. We said, well, actually, it's better for us to put a new 100% heat recovery one in than repair the old one.
0: At the end of the brewing process, Hepworth Co, like other brewers, must deal with large amounts of effluent. Some of this can go straight into the reed beds at the Horsham Brewery. But a lot of it must be processed first. Currently, the company has to ship this to a third party who process it in an anaerobic digester. But now, Andy plans to install a modular digester on site. That will cut the financial and carbon costs of shipping the effluent away and generate methane that can be used to provide heat.
4: So what we're trying to do is bring this in-house and um, there's a company that's pioneering a new system of anaerobic digester, digester which is stimulated uh, by electricity and works almost as quickly as an aerobic digester benefit is that uh, it produces methane, which we can use and burn as fuel. And it also comes in a containerised package, so it's a modular system, which is really quite good from an investment point of view. You only need to buy what you need now, not what you think you're going to need over the next 10 years. The heat
1: derived from burning methane will power water boilers. Andy says that the methane produced is about 75% pure. This, he hopes, will be sufficient to heat the water to the 75 to 80 degrees that is necessary for brewing. But it is a new system and it may need some refinement.
0: Another new system Hepworth & Co are installing is a high temperature heat pump. This will take the heat from the copper kettles used in brewing and put it back into the steam used for heating.
4: a new design and uh, it's been developed for using um, so steam coming off kettles and places like that. You uh, can take that steam which is around 100 centigrade and what it does is to put that heat back into um, the steam coming out because we have a steam heated kettle so there's, there's a uh, zone heater and a coil inside the kettle which heats the liquid and out of that because it's taking, the steam is condensing and it's coming back at basically at a much much lower temperature, it's going in at 3 bar and condensing so it's coming back with virtually no pressure Uh, the idea is that the high temperature heat pump will take the heat from the evaporation on the copper and put it back into the steam that's coming out of the coils to go back into the copper at three bar to keep it boiling. Systems like this
1: allow Hepworth & Co to make the most efficient use of the heat that they produce. But this is a small brewery that only brews in the week. At the weekend, the brewery continues to chill beer to stabilise it, and its solar powers continue to provide power. So now Andy is looking at how his company can store that power,
0: for use when needed. One way of doing this would be to store the electricity in batteries, but Andy is looking at ways it can be stored as heat. He's considered solutions that heat sand, or that use phase-change materials like those used in hand-warming gel packs. But with large amounts of water being used in the chillers, he thinks this may offer a solution.
4: The simplest way of storing heat is put it into water. Just have a couple of immersion heaters and But it's water, and and that we may do because, again, we've got the the, the recovered water off our chillers. For instance, at weekends, we're still chilling, but we're not brewing. So we have a 15,000-litre tank that gently fills up over the weekend that we then use during the week. If we put up more solar panels, it's a way of storing the energy we need. We need largely heat.
1: Andy is still weighing his options for heat storage and is keen to hear from innovative companies that want to trial modular or contained solutions
0: suitable for a small business. The brewing industry has become increasingly innovative in recent years. The UK has seen a flourishing market for craft beers produced in local and small-scale operations. At the same time, many drinkers enjoy beers like Budweiser brewed in a constant process at a vast scale for distribution around the country.
1: Drinkers are often reminded to drink responsibly. That's meant as an encouragement not to risk their health through heavy drinking or to drink drive or get so out of control they hurt themselves or others. But many also want to take responsibility for the planet's health.
0: Brewers of all sizes are cutting carbon use in their operations. They're serving as a testing ground for innovations that could find uses across the industry. And if Tim O'Rourke is right, making use of more nature-friendly farming processes could even mean that each pint you drink takes carbon out of the atmosphere and improves biodiversity. And that's something that's well worth toasting.
1: Cheers. Cheers. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and Ross McPherson. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the man who's always ready to get around in, Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. The Engineering Matters and Reby Media team have been working on a new podcast series in partnership with HS2. How to Build a Railway is a 12-part podcast series exploring the story behind the construction of the UK's new high-speed rail line. It's now available on all podcast apps. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk.